Welcome to Cross Point Winter Park. Uh, if you are new with us since Easter, if you can remember that far back, some of us, we have been going through the book of Ecclesiastes together, just bit by bit on Sunday mornings. Ecclesiastes, if you never read it before, is a profound book. In it, we find this ancient wisdom that very much has a modern appeal to it. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes looks at all the complexities of life that you and I come across every day. And though it helps us explain and answer some of those, it's actually not the book's primary aim. Actually, when we look at the words of the teacher, primarily what we find is this, patient, mature, godly wisdom that's actually helping us live in life when we don't have all the answers. And one of the ways it does that is by ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ, who in his life faced the uncertainties that you and I face every day, and in his death has now made more certain than ever God's love for us. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead, open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. That's where we're going to be looking today, verses 1 through 8. If you don't own a Bible or have one with you right now, there are some paperback ones on those back tables when you walked in. You can go ahead, grab one of those. I think our sermon passage this morning is on page 622. But Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to be looking this morning. And so read with me the words of the teacher. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. How do you react when something's uncertain? When you don't know what's going to happen next, what do you do? I can remember a time in my life very much having to face this question. I was about 24 at that time. I'll let you decide how long ago that actually was. I had been working for a ministry in the town I grew up in after college for a couple of years. After some time, I decided I wanted to go back to school. So I did some research, talked to a bunch of people, found kind of the grad program that I felt best about. And so I made a plan. I saved up some money. I kind of set up this little transition plan at the job I was at right now. Everything was set. Everything seemed fine. There was just one problem. This school was about 17 hours away in Missouri. Now, up until that point in my life, I had basically spent my entire existence pretty much in one zip code. 
I went to college 45 minutes away from my parents' house. I never left my local news channels, like broadcast network radius, so in many ways, it just felt like I had never left home. And here I am, the day I'm about to move, and I can still remember in my head that morning pulling onto a New York State Thruway on-ramp with my Dodge Stratus packed with everything I owned, which wasn't that much at that time, but to me it felt like a lot. And as I'm pulling onto the on-ramp there, I remember suddenly the uncertainty of everything that I was about to do just coming to, at me all at once. All right, I was about to move to a part of the country that growing up in New York until that time in my life, I didn't even know if I completely believed people actually lived there. I didn't know a soul there. I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have a way to make money. I didn't even know if I was going to like it. Who knows, I could have moved there two months in, thought this was a mistake. What am I doing here? I'm now stuck with nowhere to go. Believe me, I am a planner. All right, I had thought through and tried to figure out as much as I could about what was gonna happen next, and despite all of that, I was still completely overwhelmed in that moment over the uncertainty about what was gonna happen. There was still so much that I didn't know and couldn't foresee that could happen. You see, it was in this moment that I was forced to be confronted with the uncertainty of life. And you might say, that makes sense. I mean, this sounds like a fairly large, pivotal, transitional moment in your life. It makes sense that in this kind of particular moment, you'd be really forced to think about those things. But if we're being honest, this is the reality we face every day, isn't it? None of us really truly know what's gonna happen next. I mean, just think about all the things in the last week, the last month, the last year of your life that you never could have seen coming or that you did see coming but didn't happen the way that you happened or in the time that you happened or in the thought process that you thought it would all work out in. I mean, when you think about it, compared to what we do know, the relative amount of uncertainty in our lives is staggering if we really reflect on it. So what do you do? How do you live when you can't know or control everything that's gonna happen next? You see, it's this common experience that we today share with the teacher in Ecclesiastes that he is helping us navigate here. And it's in this ancient wisdom that I think we find some modern guidance on how to live and thrive in the uncertainties of life that we face every day. And in particular, I think there's four things when we look at this passage that we see. I think we see something risky or something wise, something risky, something convicting, something compelling. Wise, risky, convicting, compelling. It starts with the teacher giving us really what is his best wisdom on how to cope with the uncertainties of life. And it starts by him giving us these two metaphors. Look with me in verse one. He says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. 
And the, the Hebrew of this verse is a little difficult to translate. Some of your translations might say something a little different here. I think actually the best way to translate it would be drop your bread on top of the water because after many days, you might find it. And the image uh, that he's kind of pulling up here, we, we think of that and we think of kind of just like a big loaf of bread that you kind of plunk into the water and it would probably just sink to the bottom. But actually, what he's talking about here would be better thought of as kind of this round, hard disc of like pita bread that if you kind of just gently put on the water, it would just kind of float and bob around until you might find it again. And the image that he's drawing here is actually of ships that people would put out onto the sea to trade their money with someone. And what he's saying is, invest your money. Because just like you might find that little disc of bread floating back up onto the shore a few days later, if you invest your money, who knows? Over time, you might receive a return on it. And then in verse two, he says, give a portion to seven, yes, even to eight. You do not know what disaster might come upon the land. In other words, put your investment in seven or even eight, which is kind of just this Hebrew idiom that means a bunch. Spread it out all over the place. So first he says, invest your money, because who knows what's going to happen. You might get a return on it. But then he, he takes it even a step further. He says, he says, don't just invest it all in one place. Diversify. Don't play it safe. Spread it out to as many places as you possibly can. But because as he says in the second part of verse two, you don't know what disaster may happen upon the land. And it's in these two metaphors that I think really when we put them together, we get one kind of paradoxical call. Essentially what the teacher is saying is this. Life's uncertain, so take a chance. You don't know what's gonna happen next. You can't control what's around the corner. So don't play it safe, go for it. Invest your money and don't even invest it in one place. Spread it all over to as many places as you possibly can because in the end, who knows what's gonna happen to it, so why play it safe? And this couldn't be in many ways more accurate in one sense in our lives today. I mean, we all know this. None of us can truly predict and plan what's gonna happen. In the end, we know it's just like what the teacher is saying here, that who really knows what's gonna happen? Some of us, I think, I know, are in the midst of this right now. You have job uncertainty, you have health uncertainty, you have marriage uncertainty, you have financial uncertainty, and all of those things, if we're being honest, are really connected together, aren't they? I mean, pull on any one of those threads and then suddenly a whole bunch of other things that you didn't even realize would become suddenly very uncertain and unpredictable in your life too. And the teacher's wisdom to us in this is you're right. So go for it. Nobody knows what's gonna happen next, so take a chance. This is what the Apostle Paul in the New Testament would later go on to say as making the most of today, that life's uncertain, so what's God calling you to right now? What is the thing that he's leading you toward today? Here's the teacher's wisdom. You don't know what's coming, so go for it. And when we hear that, I mean, it sounds a little inspiring 
a little optimistic. I mean, that's a lot of just kind of the pop wisdom we hear today, right? Take risks, take chances. There's no failure, there's just feedback. Everything's a learning experience in life, right? But if we're being honest, I think maybe you guys are a little sharper than that. I think when you hear this, like me, you think, I don't know if that's wise. Sounds a little risky to me. And that's in part because of the, these two observations that he gives next that highlight to us even more the sheer unpredictability of life. In verse 3, he says, If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where it falls, there it will lie. And now the storm clouds in this metaphor, something we can see coming. They're relatively predictable, even in that day. You can see them and anticipate them coming for a while, but in the end, none of us truly know or control when they're actually going to decide to rain or not. I mean, we of all people here in Florida should know this best, home of the spaghetti strand hurricane model. I mean, we can see a hurricane coming for weeks, nay, I say months, and then at the last second, just a little twist of a turn, and it could either hit your city or miss your city. The tree falling in the woods, though, isn't something we can kind of anticipate and see coming. That's, that's something sudden. That's something you don't expect to happen. And when it does happen, it can land anywhere, the north or the south, which is basically just an expression that means it's going to fall where it's going to fall. It's not going to consult you and me on how that's going to happen. It's just going to do it, and where it lays, there it is. And we can't predict when that's going to happen. We can't know what that's going to look like. It happens out of the middle of nowhere. And what he's essentially saying in this is that both the things we can anticipate and see coming and the things that we don't expect or don't see coming, none of us can truly predict. See, the reality is it's not just the sudden, but even the anticipated things in life that ultimately are still incredibly uncertain, still incredibly unpredictable. And I think it's because of this, it makes the wisdom in the first two verses here actually sound maybe a touch too risky for us today. But that feeling that we all have right now is actually a relatively new feeling. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but it's, it's really only been the last four, at most 500 years that people have been describing certain situations as risky, um, that they've been calculating and managing risk. The idea of risk is relatively a new phenomenon when you just zoom out into the scope and history of humanity. Peter Bernstein, who was a, he was a financial historian, taught for a little while at Harvard, died about 10 years ago, wrote a book called Against the Gods, The Remarkable uh, History of Risk. And in it, he describes how this idea of risk that we just all understand today really came about over the last maybe 400 years. You see, ancient people, people maybe during the time that Ecclesiastes was written, they wouldn't understand the idea of risk. They understood like there's danger, things that could happen, but they wouldn't really get the idea of risk. See, ancient people believed in fate. They thought that their life and the world was all predetermined by the gods, that you were set on this course of this inescapable fate, and try as much as you can, there's nothing that you could do to get out of it. So there's really no idea of risk 
There's bad things that could happen in life, but there's no idea of taking a chance on something, none of that. It was all fate. But around the 1500s, 1600s, two kind of new ideas, new things happened that really helped this idea of risk that we all understand today to blossom. God began to shrink, and the world began to grow. So first, God began to shrink. Around that time, about four or 500 years ago, this new idea was starting to grow. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It was called deism. Essentially, deism was this. The, the image they drew was that God created the world kind of like someone would create a clock, and he wound up that clock, and he's now, after creating it, stepped back, and he's just letting the clock go. It's just letting the world tick on its own, meaning that he's not very involved in everyday life. Unlike what ancient people thought, that it's just this cold, hard, cruel fate that you are the victim of. No, now God is relatively detached. He's not really involved in our everyday life anymore. He's left that up to you and me. Now we're not the victims of inescapable fate. No, now we're the ones who make things happen. And as God began to shrink from everyday life, the world began to grow. All right, this was about the time that global exploration was like really in full swing. And global trade became a way for people to make money, lots of money, like money they had never seen before. But at that time in particular, to send a ship with a lot of really expensive things on it across the ocean to another part of the world was a fairly dangerous, unpredictable thing. So what people started doing was they started calculating and managing as much as they could the potential of loss versus the re potential reward of gain as they shipped out their investments all around the world. Meaning that for the first time ever, people began to risk. Because it's not all up to fate anymore. It's not all up to the gods. Instead, it's on us. And this idea of risk has really only continued to grow today. I mean, in, in our American culture right now, we walk around with a certain level of risk management attached, I think, to everything that we do. We manage risks in our relationships, how much we're gonna let people in, how much we're gonna keep people out. We manage risk in our families, how much we're gonna attach to a certain person versus not attach to them. We manage risk in how we parent our kids. And studies are coming out today that are showing that it's this culture of risk management that we assess to everything we do. We're constantly calculating the odds is actually making us more anxious and is, in effect, helping us come apart at the seams in many ways as a culture and a society. You know, I, I had a um, friend, maybe five, six years ago, who, in a very gracious way, pointed out how much this had just permeated my own life. Becca and I were over at his house, um, getting dinner with him and his wife, and we were talking to them about this big life decision we were trying to make, kind of this fork in the road. We didn't know where to go next. And he said, Eric, can I, can I tell you something that I've observed in you as a friend? Here's what I see happen. When you come up to a challenge in life, when you come up to kind of a fork in the road, decision needs to be made, I see you measure the challenge, and then you measure yourself, and you decide if you have what it takes to move forward. Because what my friend could see, better than I could see it even in my own self, 
was that I approached so much of my life like it's all up to me. And so in ways that I didn't even fully understand, I just walked around calculating the risk on everything that I did. And I know I'm not the only person here who's experienced the weight that that puts on you to approach life every day like it's all up to me. And so I gotta calculate the risk, I gotta manage as much as I can, because in the end, it's me. Something wise, maybe something a little risky. Third, something convicting though. In verse four, the teacher shows us what happens when you and I try to deal with the uncertainty of life all on our own. He says, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And in this image, he's giving us here kind of two pictures of this different farmer. On the one hand is this farmer who, as he says, watches the wind, waiting to know when the rain's going to come in behind it and the perfect time will be for him to plant his crops. But the problem is, This farmer watches and watches and watches, trying to figure out as much as he can, just the right time to plant, and in the end, he doesn't plant anything. But then on the other side, he says this farmer spends all day looking at the clouds, trying to know when the dry seasons come, when it's now safe for him to harvest his crops, put them up into barns. But as he watches and watches and watches, trying to figure out just the perfect time for him to take all his plants out of the field, he doesn't take any of them out. And they die on the stalk and he's got nothing left to show for it. See, what the teacher's saying is that given the uncertainty of life, the farmer tries to cope with it by knowing and controlling as much as he possibly can, but in the end, it ruins him. And what's true of the farmer, you see, is actually true of you and me. Given the uncertainty in life, we, I think, more often than we realize, try to cope with it by knowing and controlling as much of it as we possibly can. And for some of us, this looks just like the farmer here. Because we can't predict things, because life's uncertain and we know that, we can feel paralyzed at times. When we need to make a decision, we examine all the options, We look at all the different scenarios, we ask friends, we ask our spouse, we bounce ideas off of people, we pray about it a lot, and then after the end of all of that, we still find ourselves second-guessing every moment of it, racked with doubt about what we're about to do because it's still just a little too risky. There's still too much that's left up to chance. Or maybe... Maybe it's not even big decisions in life. Maybe you find that this is more just kind of the day-to-day temperature of how you live. There's so much that you don't know. There's so much that's out of control in your life that you find yourself walking around with just kind of this inner dialogue all the time of what ifs. What if this doesn't happen? What if this doesn't happen the way I thought it would? What if this happens, but it's before I was ready for it, or it takes too long, and, I, and I've lost the whole opportunity in the end? And what happens is you, you find yourself with this kind of internal guardedness to life, where you can never really step out into something 
because there's just too much chance involved. But you know, there's a second farmer that the teacher could have talked about here. This person doesn't maybe feel paralyzed um, by things. They're on the other side. They're maybe a little too confident at times, maybe a little irresponsible in things. This is the person who just flies into everything. I've got it under control. There's no failure, there's only feedback. Take risks. You just get to know more about yourself, right? Nothing can go wrong. If it does, I am confident I'm the one who's gonna be able to overcome it. We know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly what will happen. There's nothing that can catch us off guard. We're so confident, we know even God won't let us down. Maybe we think, I've done everything he's asked me to do. Been a good, moral person. I've obeyed all of the things that I see him telling me to be in the Bible, so nothing can go wrong in life. And because of that, we walk around maybe projecting, not this feeling of being paralyzed, but this overconfidence to let everyone else know around us, I got it under control. I'm the one who can make it all happen. But the reality the teacher tells us is that we don't. In verse 5, he says, As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you can't understand the work of God, the maker of all things. You see, what the teacher is telling us is that no matter how we want to look at it, there is still so much in our lives that we can't explain. Even today, when we have made incredible advances in science and technology, there are still so many things that happen in our world, happen in our lives, that we can't immediately attach to some sort of natural cause, that we can't explain logically and rationally, that in the end, we're not in control, and we were never made to be. In Genesis, in the very beginning, in the garden, chapter three, our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were in that moment trying to know and understand things they were never meant to understand, trying to control things they were never meant to control, God himself. And God called that moment sin because it separates us from God. Because you see, no matter how we show it, whether we feel paralyzed or whether we feel overly confident, maybe even a touch irresponsible about it at times, us trying to know and control as much as we can in our life is essentially us telling God, I don't think you're powerful enough or love me enough for me to trust you. It separates us from God, but also separates us from ourselves. When we try to know and control everything that's in front of us, it actually dehumanizes you. It makes you less of who you were truly meant to be and how you were truly meant to flourish and thrive in life. The teacher says, life's uncertain, so go for it. And we hear that today and we think, Sounds a little bit risky. That's because truly underneath it all, he's convicting the need that I have to try to know and control as much as I can in my life. 
But it's in the conviction in verse five that lastly, we see something compelling. As the teacher is convicting us of our our general ignorance to understand what's gonna happen next, we find something that frees us to embrace the wisdom that the teacher is talking about here, to not feel paralyzed, but to not also be overly confident about, about it at times, but instead to put our faith in God and to boldly make the most of today. After he tells us that there's, in verse five, so much in our observed world that we can't understand, the teacher says, in the same way and even more so, we can't understand the invisible works of God. Now that phrase, the work of God, works of God, comes up various places in the Old Testament. Probably the best place to understand it is in the Psalms. In Psalm 111, for instance, the psalmist writes this poem about the works of God. And in the first couple of verses, he writes these kind of beautiful lyrical lines praising the works of God that we can all see in creation. But then after that, he moves on and spends almost the entire rest of the poem praising God's work of redemption, praising the God who he calls gracious and compassionate and is given now not just creation, but ultimately salvation for his people. And what most commentators on that passage think the psalmist is referring back to is the Exodus. When God in love heard the cries of his people, rescued them, redeemed them, setting them free from slavery to now live with him in a land that he will give them. You see, what the teacher is saying here is that just as we can't explain our observed world, even more so we can't explain the ways of God who creates and saves his people in love. That in convicting us of our ignorance here, he's actually giving us these compelling words of grace to now embrace the wisdom of the teacher. That though we can't control everything in life, the one who does is unconditionally committed to his people. And he's now calling you to step out in faith with him in the uncertainty of life and follow him where he's calling you right now. And as compelling as this is, these words were ultimately waiting for a greater work of God, for a greater exodus that would come, a greater work of redemption and new creation that God would do now through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's Jesus, God himself, who came into our world of uncertainty and unpredictability and chaos and lived a life of perfect submission and trust to his heavenly Father until he then went and died on a cross to forgive your need and my need to know and control as much as we can in our lives. And when God did that, he wasn't taking a risk on you. He knew your deepest places of shame he knew your most regrettable moments of sin and it didn't stop him. And he didn't leave anything up to chance. No, he made sure at the cost of himself that through faith you would experience the greatest work of God. 
in the redeeming, recreating love of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And now in his resurrection, Jesus has rose and is remaking all things and calling you to now come and be a part. Join in the greater works of God that he is doing today. You wanna know how we live in a life of uncertainty? You wanna know how we live when we can't know and control everything? It's not by kind of just giving ourselves some kind of pop psychology. Well, as long as I just try things out, I'm getting to know more about myself, there's, there's no failure, there's just learning, everything will be fine in the end. No, it's not by doing that. It's also not by trying to control things, by well, if I just be a good moral person, then clearly nothing can go wrong and I'll be able to know and predict everything that's coming. No, the way we do that is by knowing that the God who's in, who is in control, whose works we can't explain, who made and rules over everything that we see, that God died for you. When you know that, when that seeps down into the center of who you are, you can then hear the wisdom that the teacher says in verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you don't know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. You see, what he's doing in this verse is he's basically just repeating everything he said in the passage up until then. Life's uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen next. You'll never be able to know. So make the most of today. Take a chance. Go for it. You see, in the end, what we find is it's not like the ancients thought, that we are just left to this cruel, unpredictable fate, but it's also not like modern people think today, that ultimately we're in the driver's seat, we're in control, we're the ones that make things happen. No, what we see in the words of the teacher and ultimately in the gift of Jesus is that though we're not in control, what we do still matters. So don't be paralyzed but also don't be overly confident, irresponsible, but instead find the freedom in Jesus of putting your faith in God and following him where he's leading you. So where do you sense God calling you? Today, where do you feel he's leading you? Is it maybe a relationship to reconcile? Is it a neighbor that he wants you to know? Is there a job that he's leading you into, a transition in life that he's pushing you towards? Or is there something uncertain in your life? Is it money? Is it emotional health? Is it your very relationship with God? Whatever it is, put your faith in God and make the most of today because even though we're not in control, the freedom that the teacher's showing us here is that the God who's in control, whose works we can't understand, died and rose, and now what you do matters. We're gonna spend some time reflecting on this word that we've heard from God now. As we do, I, I'd invite you to ask, 
God, where are you leading me? Help me to see through the gift of your son that I can follow you there. First, let me pray for us. Father, I confess, faced with the uncertainty in life, there is still so much that I try to know and control that's happening around me, and I can't. Jesus, we thank you that on the cross you died for my need to know everything, control everything, and in your resurrection you rose and are inviting us now to join in you with the greater works of God, of redemption and new creation that you are doing in our world. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would press the truths of these words deep into our hearts as we pray and ultimately as we gather together for the Lord's Supper. Amen.